2: Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from 11FS office in WeWork London today. Well, unfortunately, Nigel was otherwise engaged, so couldn't make it along today. But I'm joined by two very awesome guests. So. As I think you'll probably guess by now, my name is David Breer, and I'm joined by James York, who is the founder and CEO of Worry and Peace. Hey, James, how are you doing?
3: Hi. Yeah, great.
2: Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're, you're, well, I was just mocking you a minute ago for being cold and wearing a big coat inside this office, but it's like winter wonderland outside right now, so that kind of makes sense, right?
3: Yes, and I like to be eccentric. Indeed. Well, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: like flamboyance is something I love in a man. Um, and next up, we have coming for the debut on Tech Insider, but no stranger to coming into a podcast that we run. It's Sarah Kaczynski, How's it going, Sarah? It's
0: good, thank you. My second one this week. I'm racking them up. <laughs> I
2: know. Well, yeah, you're like, we need a desk and like a plinth and a, like everything <laughs> in the audio, in the, uh, in the office right now for you. It's um, it's getting to be somewhat of a habit, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Indeed. Um, right, let's kick things off. And let's start with you, James. So r- tell us a little bit more about what you do. What is Worry and Peace and um, how long have you guys been about?
3: yeah, great i'd be I'd be happy to. Um I mean, I suppose in the most basic level, worrying pieces and peace is an intermediary. Authorised by the FCA a couple of years ago, um, we spent probably the first eighteen months of our existence trying to convince insurers to work with a, a little new startup. Um, it's we're independent, a challenge. It's yeah. A challenge, right? oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. But that's a whole another podcast. Um, yeah, we we're independently run, so we didn't go out there and, and sell the vision and, and raise money. We've kind of done it the, the bootstrap, super bootstrap kind of way. Um, and uh, really, our, our the problem I guess we we're looking to solve is to create an inventory of everything insurance. So, not necessarily distinguishing between, you know, a specialist line and a, a small business line. Um, I call it the PDF economy, and uh, I think we've kind of got to this point where the moniker for that mindset is stretchy inventory. So, do we need to sell it ourselves? Can we stock something virtually? Yeah. I, I suppose, in essence. So that's that's been the the initial mindset and. You know the brand was just a URL I kind of conjured and came up with. Um, it was available. I bought all the ones I could find, <laughs> and you know it, it, I've kind of fallen in love with it after I designed the logo and, and did it all kind of myself. So.
2: Well, we we talked on FinTech Insider a bunch of times about naming of things, haven't we, Sarah? But um, like, actually, you make it mean something. Like you, you know, it uh, it's almost like um, Jason uh, kind of shows off quite often, doesn't he, saying he named Monzo and Starling and all these different types of things. But like you as a company give a name meaning don't you?
3: You do and, and our meaning is it's, it's got tongue in cheek just like our brand but it also has a serious side to it you know worry and peace that I'm very militant on the plus rather than an ampersand and I know people get really really upset about it but it's, it's an equation right you can't ever get full peace of mind, um, for your worries. And there's a budgeting thing, there's a coverage element. So that equation is just, it's really nicely balanced. They're two really easy words that most people around the world who speak English as a first or second language are going to get. And the equals is kind of the customer service that's invisible behind it that galvanizes the whole brand. Um, But obviously the tongue-in-cheek element of it is that most insurance terms are like war and peace right so um, that's you know obviously the thing that we need to eradicate so there's a lot of hidden messages in there and and that sounds really like after the fact but but when I came up with the URL I I was looking for things to do I collect URLs anyway I don't know why it's a stupid thing to collect isn't it but it's quite an expensive habit yeah it is actually it is when you sell the odd one it works out Um, but yeah it it just really worked for me and and it took a lot of selling actually to because you know this is a family business too and you know that that question of nepotism obviously we can leave that for another day but um, my family are in insurance and they had a really traditional mindset so when i was trying to convince us all to to look at this new way of doing things um the the brand story had to come out then so it really did come from the origin
2: and in terms of like you say sort of bootstrapping to get this moving that's that's not a um it's not a, a, a fashionable way of doing a kind of a startup these days you know everybody loves that kind of vc story and the vc sort of pitch type thing um, but for companies who can do that, that's I think that's the best way. You know, it's what we've done with 11FS as well. And it it feels like the best way to go to market because you're starting a business, you know, like you have to make it make business sense. So, yeah, well, well done you for, for making that work. Thank you. What is the business model behind it? How do you actually make this uh, make this move into the market? And, uh, you know, given that you're bringing about a, a new way, then how are you monetizing this?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's fairly straightforward. Um, if you're going to stock products, if you if you look at insurance, it's intangible. Someone like Amazon stocks something tangible. It's fairly binary. You buy it off them. You either keep it or send it back. There's no umbilical cord attached to it, really, apart from obviously how they um, create algorithms to sell you more stuff. But again, it's each time it's binary. Insurance has got that that easy to sell, but then tough to serve kind of mindset. Um, so from our perspective, we've really kind of looked at, OK, how can we stock everything and create that one vision, that one dashboard of insurance. And it doesn't have to be your own stock. You can do exactly as Amazon's done. That's, the, that's where the reference comes in. They've, they've been very good at creating platforms, as we're going to talk about, um, bringing third party sellers and liberating the customer to choose and be quite fungible about who they acquire services from. Mm -hmm. Um, The the difference with insurance, unfortunately, which is where Worry and Peace kind of has has a a different spin, is that I see those as two completely different business models, the the, the selling and the after. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have Pouch. And in theory, Pouch should be detachable from Worry and Peace. And and if I was a founder of another business in a different vertical of insurance, selling something super specialist, then I should the, the idea is I should be comfortable putting an icon for Pouch on that site because it's not Worry and Peace effectively Trojan horsing into my business because that's that's our selling platform and Pouch is our kind of platform that we tie to. Mm. So there's that equality in the in the consumer's eyes. The okay. consumer is the centre of it.
2: Sounds good. So what, what's the longer term vision for this? Where, where do you see you, you sort of getting in the next three to five years, I guess?
3: Um, I think our main goal would be to, to take Pouch as, as a lead out thing, a lead out app into another market. Because, uh, and that's where I think they're... When we realised actually we don't need to be regulated to be a platform, we can take the pouch platform into markets and then follow with the worry and peace brand afterwards to to create brokerage. So I think the USA would be the place to go for that. It's um it's a tough market. I mean it's state by state. Um,
2: they love some insurance over there. They right? do. They yeah. love their
3: insurance. It's a different mindset. You know lower churn. Um you know very rigid rating structure, which I think in some ways helps uh, to innovate because you know what you're getting and there's equality between the sellers. Um but that would be our goal to take it somewhere else. And and but I think you know being realistic uh, it, it's customer numbers at the moment in the UK to fund the business if we don't raise any external capital then we have to you know wash our own faces so um, our next target is about 25,000 customers and don't ask me how many we've got now <laughs> <laughs> the press release is coming out shortly because 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 we're not VC funded I think there's a, a, a there's a validity a credibility element to releasing when you've got a, a certain milestone and we've hit one recently and to other people it might not look great but for me and two staff and a, and a super bootstrapped kind of business it's, it's a real milestone for us and yeah for sure hopefully
2: well, you'll, you'll have to tell us the number off air anyway, and then we'll uh, see. But um, but I, th- I think it's a, you know, a sign of a sort of continual trend that we're probably seeing in insurance and actually in banking as well in terms of the sort of platformification of, of everything that we're doing. So, you know, maybe we should get into that and uh, talk about what it means to be insurance as a platform.
3: Yeah.
2: So we're seeing a bit of a rise of what we sort of call, and this is not going to be very good for sort of audio people, but as a platform and there's lots of sort of air quotes going on for for everybody who's listening to this one um so really i I guess kind of getting into what does that mean in the insurance space do you want to start us off with that
3: yeah i mean for me when when you say it and obviously this is from my view of the world it's um it's kind of a trifle of of potential platforms if that makes sense i like trifle because you know like with every um, industry insurance has a supply chain and for me there's there's a, a series of interlocking platform opportunities and running through that would be um, the, the money so there's a money platform opportunity too in my view whether it's lending or the flow
2: yeah and, and is that what's a- appealing to it so how, like how is this because generally like distribution and production has been you know the big boys have had the sort of stranglehold on this in terms of the 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 process for insurance but so how is it coming about that now we're seeing this different model in terms of distribution
3: i mean i'm going to be candid and say i don't think we are seeing it yet i think we're seeing the the, the, the origin of it maybe the start the, the first feat in the journey um perhaps people are getting a bit ahead of themselves and looking at blockchain before they've you know got the easier wins there, yeah.
0: there are many easier wins than blockchain. Yeah. I don't I think even Simon would agree with me there.
3: Yeah. There's, you know, boring stuff like version control on documents for delegated authorities and how you do your due diligence on, uh, you know, a binding authority or an agency. You know, reg tech is, is probably, you know, a good area for that.
0: But arguably some of the stuff we're seeing, particularly in insurance, is actually cutting layers out as well. So if you look at somebody like Munich Re and how much money they've put into what are actually customer, customer whether that's consumer or, or, or business-facing uh, channels, which historically they haven't really had, they're actually you know in terms of in terms of becoming a platform they they are a platform in the sense that they are funding and backing all of these different companies which may look different to your average consumer but actually they've got the same you know money and and and, you know power underwriting them at that end as well so I think you know the idea of as a platform in insurance, as you say, has many different connotations. There's the the ones that are obvious to the average consumer where you go on and you see lots of different types of insurance and you can pick and choose what suits you. And then you've got the kind of that back and middle and back end that's also starting to shift. I mean, I would argue that the reinsurers and the distributors are moving much faster than the guys in the middle right now. You may have a different perspective on Do that. Do you know, but- I
3: think the Munich Re is a great example because for me, and again, you know, thump me if I'm on a, on a, off track here, but for me, a platform should be somewhat egalitarian or you know if I've got enough money to play or it's free to play for everyone it's equal it's, it's what you use the platform for that, that effectively is your power and your differentiator Munich Re is not a platform because it's a closed environment they're enabling for sure, but that platform is very limited. Um, take us, for example, we probably wouldn't be appealing to Munich Re because we're, we're a choice player. So we want you to have as a consumer choice and Munich Re would want you to use their supply chain. So that in that sense, I, I guess it's the start of it. But when an insurer realizes that, you know, they need to open up and be fully kind of, what's the word, permeable, I guess that's when it's going to start really kicking in. I
0: mean, arguably, they're the same as Amazon then, because Amazon is controlling your money and how you're paying and the payment services and the distribution. And if you're an Amazon Prime customer, it literally controls your life. Mm. Um, it does, every day. So, I bow
2: down to the so, Amazon god.
0: So, so th- I, think, I think there is a parallel there, but I, I see your point about the, um, the, and I suppose that brings us onto like, why people like, why consumers like the platform element, is that, choice and flexibility you can build something that actually suits you and that kind of feeds into another trend that we talk about all the time which is personalization
2: mm. I, I guess though doesn't it break the type of communication that people would actually have so the traditional players and the the communication this and this is actually the you know the the argument against things like marketplace banking in the banking context is actually doesn't it break the model of upsell cross sell for traditional insurance companies because, you know, there are whole lines of insurance that are are not profitable but actually are sort of um created to have completeness of of uh you know basket or wallet or what whatever would you want be an to example
0: look. of that because it's not so
2: travel pet those things are not okay. particularly uh you know pet insurance particularly has never been one of them that has been you know particularly sort of um, profit profitable for for people in terms of that space mm-hmm. i kind of remember van insurance as well being a really really sort of low profit one but again this is back in I don't know, 2008 when I was working at Aviva. So I kind of feel like it does this sort of break that model if we get into the point where platforms are actually controlling the distribution of these things. I know we've seen, you know, reasonable sort of decimation of the um, the profitability of uh, certain lines of insurance because of things like money supermarkets. So does this change the dynamic of it you know are we going to see people being creators of products and distributors of products and does it fundamentally change the way in which the products are going to be created to be distributed or do
0: you guys you do, do you guys build any products or are you literally a distributor or, or do you have that kind of element where it's if you have 75 people come to you and say we want pet insurance for a cocker spaniel that lives in harrow you'll go out and try and find a way of doing that i mean it doesn't have to be that narrow obviously or are you actually just dis- purely a distributor
3: of there's a lot of good questions in there yeah we, we build mm-hmm. in in simple terms yeah we curate which i yeah. suppose is the best thing so we would go to market that makes it non-advised because we don't offer a choice of say five and say pick this one it's the best and no we wouldn't problem hunt and aggregate that because that's kind of um, in insurance probably you know troubled me thrice i've got to find the people that have got the problem i've got to then find the solution and then i've got to sell it back to them and in that intervening period how do i know where they've gone what their needs may have changed so for me that model kind of doesn't work ironically the uk if we, if we view it as a, a lens mainland eu has a great system where you can be onboarded as a customer very quickly to become you know broker of record letter mm. and it's a system that knip and Wefox fox have used very effectively in the uk we can technically we can do that right i could find a hundred thousand aviva car insurance customers having an agency with aviva go to them with letters of authority and say hey you know these guys want better terms in reality that would be alien to to modern customers and aviva i'm not even sure their agency team would know what to do if i if i had that so that there are issues to, to those models but um yeah, you know, we, we, we build and we make, and it's very slow progress. It typically takes six to eleven months per line.
0: What's the impact of this? So, if you if you're if you're both building your own and you know and providing a variety, you're not you know a, a seller of only say for example of Eva policies. What, what's the fallout for for the old for the legacy players here? Like what 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 you know if, if, if this is where we're going and the the, the success and the consumer interface. It's going to be these platforms. What does that mean for your Axis, your Avivas, your Standard Life, is anybody else you want to think of who's a huge a huge player in this space?
3: They they need to realise that the third way is underway. If that makes sense, you know my viewpoint of insurance distribution is ironically is not either broker, stroke intermediary or direct. It, it's the middle, and there should be zero friction between one of my customers and the underwriter. Mm. I, you know I often pitch the, the way we operate to clients. Say if you've got a problem point, like there's been issue with the claim service. But, you know our scripts always present our Brand as a a retailer effectively, and on the customer side, if something goes wrong, and the the underwriter effectively is the maker, the manufacturer, um, and in that situation, you require the underwriters to start engaging with that brand opportunity, and even if they want to start having conversations, for example, with an SME, so they don't uh, reduce churn, they don't lose the business. If there's a relationship in that environment, and we can broker that, we're not a middleman anymore. We're a deal maker. We're an engager. We're and that that platform element wraps around it. So, from our perspective, everything we've got in our pipeline is looking for for those tools to be enabled and it's obviously the seller's going to be changing the culture to get people to um, you know to take those tools and use them and you know you know Dave, as well as i do that it's tough for insurers to change and ultimately what works in the startup community things like sweat equity stock warrants if i went to an insurer with a you know effectively a stock in my business they would not know where to put it they're, they're just the, the the conduits of decision making aren't in place um, so There's lots of great things that can be done, but the insurers aren't ready. And the long and short of it is that they're missing opportunities because actually there's probably a friendlier environment waiting for them than they really realise. Yeah, the level of,
2: I guess data in this sense that and, and the understanding of the the businesses that you'd be servicing uh, you know the individuals that you'd be actually servicing uh, would be significantly increased if they did move into this space I guess but there's almost like a paralysis of data in insurance anyway right yeah. are they are they in a position because this seems like quite a um, emotional step mm-hmm. to take Like, are they at the point where they really have this level of sophistication to move into this? You know, I guess the particularly on the incumbent side of things, it feels like, you know, data has been something that's been probably more of a a problem, really, than uh, than a a real sort of help when it comes to a a personalization perspective. (laughs) As it melts what appears in the glacier. Indeed. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I think if you make it
3: if you make it simple like uh, you know most insurers now have a marketing team that can use twitter or facebook right if your platform is simple enough it should be suitable for for those insurers that are working on it from our perspective the reason we haven't necessarily talked about the data is because as you say it does there's a lot of data already there and i think often it's used as a selling point to raise reputation for for a raise itself Mm -hmm. and from our perspective we haven't needed that so we've steered clear of it we've we've focused on you know new aspects of data uh, such as if an insurer was on our platform in the future technically they should be able to, f- to receive signals when an incumbent customer is considering to leave and that data they don't have at the moment it's about the information they don't have that I'm kind of looking for way to mine.
0: Is it about the information well in, uh, you just actually covered it there with the file with that sentence I saying, is it about the data they don't have or is it they don't know how to use it um, and I guess the, the big technology that I've heard all the big um, insurers talk about is AI and, the, and machine learning and basically what they mean is we finally realise we have all this data how do we use it it to to keep ourselves in the game how do we use it to to make sure we can we can compete with guys like yourself because you're obviously serving the customers better and giving them what they want more quickly so i mean how is is that the way forward is that something that you kind of you, you have a personal belief in or is it you know this this kind of machine crunching ai backed insurance industry or is that just a part of it as far as you're concerned
3: i think it's definitely part of the toolkit I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my lead mm-hmm. um, in any sense. And that's not to, to pour water on anyone that is doing that. From my perspective, ironically- I guess you're bootstrapped though, so you're not looking
2: for funding, right? So oh. if you were, you might be saying AI is the biggest thing it's ever, same right? Problem. So-
0: in the problem. In big bold letters and sending me a press release normally.
3: I don't think I still would do that because I'm belligerent. But um, I think it's it's a chicken and egg scenario, right? You've got to build the resource so it can be mined sure. with AI. And, and for me, we're focused on building a resource and, and a true platform then would allow someone with AI machine learning skills to, to, to use that or let, let the insurers use it. So that's our focus. Um, I guess um, going b- back a few notches, um, human comes into it. If you look at the big tech firms at the moment, all of them have a high street presence and I just saw today you know a great picture of Amazon's Black Friday store Yeah, you know if we're looking at these big companies and going oh wow look how great they use tech and then we ignore the fact that they're buying Whole Foods and they're getting retail units we're missing a trick you know the Apple store environment is a church it's a cathedral of branding it's not about trying to sell it's about image and customer service so from my perspective we view very heavily what we're doing in the the lens of the future of getting on the high street potentially or getting in face-to-face environments when we do engage with customers even face to face all we hear is insurance isn't human enough so going back to your original question does AI make the customer feel more engaged in a better relationship I'd argue perhaps as part of an ingredient but i I don't think it's the the magic bullet
0: so it's it's the story that ai can actually help the humans be better at what they do so free them up to build relationship yeah so so what you're suggesting is that the human element of insurance in that sense is actually the not the customer like it's customer service it's something you're ringing up and you're saying how do i file a claim or this has happened or how do you help me with that and then that customer service agent has an ai platform which is i can see who you are what you've done where your data's gone okay this is what you need to do um you know, when you're talking about the human element of insurance, is that is that what you're looking at? Is that what you mean? Or it is, is yeah? It?
3: If you go back to to the way I view insurance, is that that selling bit and that using bit? Mm-hmm. The the using bit is is really a fundamental for branding. You are you're going to make or break your brand there. If something goes wrong, you know we've had claim situations where you know a, a customer's phoned us up and said I, I don't like who the claims person is trying to put me in touch with. And instantly, you know we that's it. We're on a, we're on that like a you know whip it yeah. because that's an opportunity to reinforce what we've been paid for. Um, If a customer has, you know, phones in, they've been mugged and they've got a crime reference number, again, as a moment for kindness. There's a very emotional emotional element to to
0: insurance because whenever something happens that you need to claim for it's never a nice thing <laughs> whatever it is it's never as you say worry and peace so we have to be
3: the, if you think about it there's always a good cop bad cop the, the underwriter and the insurer have to be a bad cop and not because they're protecting their profit but in my view and the way I always explain to customers as well is they're protecting the pool mm-hmm. they're actually protecting you so that you don't have to pay too much in the aggregate over time yeah. and your premium if everything worked correctly your premium should keep coming down over time but it doesn't work correctly because there are bad mm-hmm. people so we're the good cop we can understand the emotion of it and, and support that but the under has to be the bad cop and be a bit more robotic and emotionless mm. um, and that should work really well and that's why middle people middle men whatever you want to call them are actually really relevant still they shouldn't be cut out because they insurance needs an arbitrator because it has a terrible reputation and it, it can't be the thing it needs to be to build a better relationship.
2: Hmm. I don't think computers are necessarily going to fix that, are they? I think the uh, the sort of empathy, as you say, of a from a claim perspective or the understanding through the process of that or even just ensuring that actually you're, you're getting what you need to feel like you're fully covered. You know, this is about, like insurance is about peace of mind to a certain degree. And actually the peace of mind that you've got the right thing for you and for your family or for your stuff uh, is, you know, is a, a great thing in its sense so but like this all sounds like too wonderful though like what's the catch what's what's the problem here like platforms must have some sort of downfall in terms of like from a uh, particularly from an insurance perspective there must be something that is different or like, is this just the yeah. future and, like, get get with the plan? I people? mean,
0: I, I wonder if there are... Uh, if this is the way everything's going and everything becomes on a platform and, you know, it's, it's digital, digitally served or digitally sold, do you instantly cut people out who don't have access to a computer? Do you... That's always my question with this kind of stuff because I know everyone There'll always be an A plan. Always, <laughs> think, yeah, 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 well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I... Oh, my gosh, I guess... It's so,
2: going to be a my mum or your mum story. <laughs> I <guess>. It's, it's <laughs> a your mum's turn, a, right? Yeah, 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 I think so.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, but I guess... What's, is the way around that then, okay, we build everything on a platform, but then we open a shop and in our shop we have lots of tiles on the wall and you go in and pick your services using pretty pictures on the wall, I don't know, I'm thinking, or, or an iPad. You know, I love that idea, kind of I'm it.
3: writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing about insurance intermediaries, I, I suspect, they've always been the innovators, if I'm honest. Um, that's not to say insurers can't or don't, but they've had brokers to kind of do that mostly for them. They bear the marketing costs, they get paid on delivery. So it's a, it's a good asset to have. Um, so insurers should should kind of relinquish that at their peril. But yeah, you're, you're, you know you're absolutely right.
0: So I guess the, the, the final question here which we're trying to wrap up is like if this is if we've decided we've kind of decided between us right this is the future of really? the way insurances work we we will believe you're going to go to a platform whichever it might be and you know you're either an Amazon person or an eBay person or an Etsy I've person i got my baby brain back by the way I've never uh, on <laughs> um, <laughs> then you know if, if, if my platform is Worry and Peace and, and as far as I understand it your your pouch product is where I keep all my different insurance from different insurers right so so I haven't even won a standard life one there are a million other insurers out there I can't remember any of them right now um you know that's that's your kind of and you love it and you've also because you've got the technological back end you can serve people quicker and faster but that means you've also got money left to have people and they can be empathetic on the phone why why isn't it why isn't it everywhere yet what's the problem there what's the downside
3: it's hard it's expensive (laughs) and there's a lot of people kind of um if you were trying to have a conversation at a party and the music was so loud you couldn't hear the other person they might be telling you you know I love you. (laughs) And you wouldn't be able to hear, right? It could be the moment of your life. And that is something that all the insurance startups are going to have to get through. Um, You look at, there was a big insurer that released a big, an excellent app. And it's, by all accounts, not delivered as much as they would have hoped because it's still expensive. Mm -hmm. So I guess the key for us is to... God, it sounds cheesy, but focus on the product and make sure that gets um, you know perfected as best it can and make sure we have a, a groundswell, a healthy, sustainable number of happy customers and then look for that moment where you realise you're at the top of the hill and you can roll down a bit quicker and, and get virility, which is the key element to it. But a, a lot of the VCs I know are looking for people that can eradicate that cost of acquisition issue or that brand creation issue. That's a shortcut that just can't happen. And, you know, I hear a lot about defensibility in, in SureTech. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very competitive market, almost perfectly competitive. Yeah. If you think you've got a product that you're selling to a particular segment that you've got absolute defensibility of, there will be six more within a year. So it is going to ultimately be about the platform and relinquishing control to the consumer. And, and, and loyalty, building loyalty. And, loyalty. and other, other services. You know, the the Pouch Mail release that we've got in beta testing at the moment with Early Bird's, um, is designed to be an email address for insurance. Now, w- will it work? Will it not work? It's, it's actually fascinating to watch how people are using it. But take something like a car insurance purchase. You go to two comparison sites, two direct insurers, maybe pick one of the comparison sites insurers. You've got five people with your email. Come next May, GDPR is going to have a bit of a hand in what they can and can't do after that. Mm-hmm. You might have checked a box you've not realised. So there's going to potentially open up you know, customer friend products you know, where you can actually act as a service provider or almost be a policeman um, of that industry and that obligation to consumers so if that's used properly that has a positive effect that people are going to start spreading word of mouth about and it's not about selling
0: and that actually has an advantage as well because there are a number of times i've missed emails which is like your insurance needs renewing and by the way we're going to charge you another 150 pounds and i don't realize until the money goes out of my account and i'm like wait what and then i have to go back and find the email in my spam
3: box you if know if you're paying premium on pouch next year maybe you could have someone policing that and looking for those moments for you or have an ai program if you've had the capability to, to do that yeah so I, I think that's the
2: you know to 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 summarise and move on Uh, I guess it's you know we're seeing this in a couple of other industries as well you know particularly in the banking space we're seeing people moving from the creation of a product that you buy once Mm -hmm. to a service that you get value from every day Mm -hmm. and I think that's things like the 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 patch product you're referring to sounds like something that I would get benefit from not just the day that I buy it but every day where it's relevant which I think is the great thing about what we're seeing in this space and probably a nice place to wrap up so we'll move on to now what's happened in the news So, uh, first up in the news, we have a story on BBC News. We went for, like, a big top one straight away there, Sarah, didn't we? Like, no no nonsense, like, straight in with one of the big boys. And this is insurance gap penalises poor households. Kind of feels like it's sort of a bit of a being kicked while you're down on this one. What do you think?
0: I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. I think that there is... A, like a, a knowledge gap that's appeared so I, I kind of think that if you look at our parents generation and the generation before that um, everybody owned a house and when you bought a house you knew you had to buy insurance and, and that was in everybody's minds and, and that was kind of how it was done and then we've moved into this kind of but this is this article in particular is talking about uh, people on low income and people who rent <laughs> as a lot of people most people on low income do um, and about how they have no content insurance but I think actually the point is they don't know that they need content insurance to start with and that's because Primarily, people didn't rent before. we um, was thinking about this and looking at what Lemonade have done in the US, and you know they they have made a, a business, a huge business, out of selling renters insurance, which is effectively equivalent of contents insurance to uh, people in in New York, who obviously can't afford to buy for as little as five dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they've done that is go out and just. You know, word of mouth, but also bringing that price down at the same time, and both of those together have have helped to fill backfill that knowledge gap. And the point being that um, it kind of it is kicking people off their down, but I think that they're they're down in two ways. One is that they can't afford the insurance. The other is that they don't know they need yeah.
2: the insurance. Well, and I, and I like I have. You know, there's a bunch of insurances that you have to have, like mm. to drive a yeah. car to is an instance for a type thing, just in case there's anybody out there who doesn't think that that's <laughs> a necessary thing. Um a legal
0: requirement. It is.
2: But like I said, contents insurance is kind of like a bit of a, do you want to take the risk of there being a problem? Do you not want to take the risk of that? Like I have it because I think my mum, talking about my mum now, basically <laughs> told me I should have it and I didn't yeah. question it and I'm still doing it now as like, a, you know, I'm, I'm an adult now. I should be able to make my own decisions, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that we, um, so when I went to uni, we got uh, content insurance with our accommodation the first year. I think that's quite a common model, but I also think that there are an awful lot of people whose parents or whose maintenance gro- loans pay for pay for their accommodation that first and that includes the insurance. Um, I think. I think it is kind of the education piece is really fascinating as well because people, as you say, like if you don't have travel insurance. It's very rare and if you're, that you'll actually get sick. And if you're in Europe, actually you're covered. Um, you know, what other things might you insure? Well, your phone or your laptop. But a lot of people are prepared to take the risk there. But with contents, I think people don't actually have it in their head. So I was talking to, to a couple of people who I work with who are both under the age of 25. And I asked them if they had any insurance. They said no, no insurance at all on anything, either of them. And I said, well, what if your flat burnt down and every item of clothing you own and every item of jewellery and every pair of shoes went with it? what would you do? And they were like, the look on their little faces. Honestly, I felt terrible. Wow, but they had shadowing
2: some dreams there. <laughs> like...
0: But they, but they actually didn't understand that that's what content insurance was. And once put in that perspective, it suddenly became far more important than insuring a mobile phone or travel insurance or, or you know health insurance, which some people have in this country.
2: So, tips for insurers: lead on fear. You might want <laughs> to educate those uns what to do. So, uh, moving on, we have a story on Insurance Business Magazine, and this is insurers warned warned to assess data exposures ahead of gdpr now it seems like the whole world is kind of pretty much freaking out about gdpr now being able to keep up with what's actually happening having to change the way in which they're approaching doing elements of data capture and also the marketing Mm -hmm. off the back of it Um, but it seems that the insurance space seems to be particularly exposed which is never a good thing really
0: no, I mean, there's two two ways in which the insurers are exposed as far as this article points out. One is that as the one we all know is, you know, you have to better manage data or we will fine you, um,
2: said the EU every time. And they don't seem um, to be messing about with that stuff, do they? No,
0: I mean, the numbers are are terrifying, the, 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 the levels those fines can go up to. But the second, I think, possibly more interesting point that this article makes is that actually insurers are doubly exposed because the way that a lot of their policies are written at the moment... If they don't update them in time to match GDPR, they will suddenly be liable for a load to paying out on a load of claims, basically down to like the terminology they use and the gaps and things that are and aren't covered that don't match up. Um, So they're having to sort of, you know, backtrack. And that's an awful lot of policies to rewrite and change terminologies in. And I don't even know how you do that.
2: So is this a technical problem again? Because, you know, we've seen you know lots of large investments being sort of put forward and there's the the, always the quotes of you know 70 90 is based on just adhering to legislation so is this archaic technology systems that is making it difficult for these guys to to make these changes is the policies or is it literally the legal process and the people process or do we need a a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters to kind of keep up with this stuff
0: i think that's probably the solution but what this article was insinuating was that the insurers didn't actually know they didn't they weren't actually aware of what they were suddenly liable for if that makes sense Insurers are liable, but you know what I mean.
2: Ignorance not being bliss. then. Um, last story that we've got is uh, on insurance times. And this is, and probably not a surprise to anybody who listens to any of the podcasts that we do, but this is Amazon could pose a huge threat to insurers. Like, duh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is that I've heard this said twice in the last week, once by somebody very senior at AXA and a second time by somebody very senior at Santander, who, when asked, you know, are the tech giants coming for you, both said, amazon is we don't fear google right now and we don't fear facebook right now but my god are we terrified of amazon
2: Mm. well i think i think amazon's moving to business accounts and everything Mm. There, really hard into that side of things i think it is an interesting view and and what they're you know they're going to be governed by the same sort of regulation that everybody is from a data perspective but actually they seem to be able to do more things with it quicker and actually infer more information to enact on the customer experience a lot better than any big you know financial services organization does ever really
0: well i mean and also you know excluding our our chinese friends amazon actually sells stuffs don't they david you know they sell stuff do they sell stuff to you by any chance they
2: sell lots of stuff to me i think the the business threat to us is probably me spending all of our money on it which is probably a good point to wrap up here so on the last part of what we're doing today we have an interview with sasha winscheck who is the ceo and founder of fuel so let's have a listen to the interview
1: Welcome to InsureTech Insider Interviews, coming to you from WeWork in London. I'm Simon Taylor from 11FS, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sasha Wischek, CEO and founder of Fuel, an application that is able to track its users' fitness level and provides real-time analytics and guidance. Sasha, thanks for being on the show. How are you, sir?
4: Pleasure. Uh, very well, very well. A uh, bit, bit snow around here, but that's to be expected here in Finland. Otherwise, all fueled up for the interview.
1: Fueled up for the interview, and uh, if you th- that sort of speaks to an interesting spelling of your name, it's like F J U U L. There's some there's some Nordic background there. There's some fuel. Um, let me t- tell me the story. Tell me how you came into wanting to build a startup. What problem did you see, and what was bothering you about the world? And you you thought, right, you know what, we need a company for this. What what's that background?
4: Yeah, it was in. Somewhere in 2013, you know, when um, well, I was already working in the, in the healthcare space for for consulting company, and then I realized that, you know, having made all those crazy charts looking into the future, I thought healthcare is going to be a hot topic and a major problem for us as a society in the future. And uh, so what I realized pretty much, uh, and I think nothing must, much has changed uh, today, is that there's been a lot of solutions, you know, for either sort of, let's call it sick people uh, or then very active people. And uh, we wanted to have this, you know, idea to bring, let's say, fitness to everyday people and everyday life uh, and making this experience more meaningful and rewarding. And, uh, and I think that where fuel was born. So fuel, the name is basically, you know, the fuel, the kinetic energy of your body. And uh, that's actually how this whole thing came, out, came about.
1: So when you say bringing fitness to everyday life, what does that actually mean? Are we talking about... Fitbit, fitness trackers, like, is this quantified self stuff? Like, what's actually happening?
4: Uh, Yeah, first of all, I mean, if you talk Fitbit and the likes, it means you have to have an external tracker. And uh, let's say for the normal Jane and Jack average, it's a question of why should I get one if I don't know if I use it, you know? And so we wanted to make, you know, so in a certain sense, it's a barrier, you know, and some people might feel intimidated as well if they're not yet the sporty people, you know? And so what we had in mind was to bring, you know this logic of this fuel logic to smartphones so everyone can use it without any obstacle, actually, just download the app and use it. And, um, and it's you know, we still feel these 10,000 steps a day is super outdated, it's pretty meaningless. So, we came, came, came up with a new metric w- which we call fuel, but I tell about the scientific stuff in a minute. But, uh, that's the thing, you know, and plus, a lot of times, this quantified self is backward looking, you know, it's like a diary and so on but it doesn't give you the dotted line in terms of the future you know what and i think personally i mean we have you know if i want to go to the uh, if i want to look to uh, to the back side of things i go to the graveyard and i don't use a fitness tracker you know so we have, we want to have a more forward looking experience and give people the motivation and hope to be more active
1: you want to show people the future rather than tell them what they did, uh, I guess, and then show them what their potential future could be if they do ABC to try and modify behavior. So they've right. they've downloaded this app, and this app, I guess, has you're using the sensors on the device to figure stuff out about what they're up to and how active they are. Is is and what? Give me give me an example.
4: Yeah, I mean, let's say let's call it the use case. Let's say how do people use it actually in, in real life? So of course you download the app, and the key thing is that you know. Uh, it tracks everything in the background without using GPS and so on. So it doesn't drain your battery. And um, And it can actually recognize your movement patterns. And it, based on the intensity of your movement, it gives you a value that you should achieve per day. And we call it a healthy dose of daily activity. So you just go about your day and uh, you see all your movement mapped on an activity stream. And the system tells you, hey, just X amount of minutes to go to reach a healthy dose of activity. That's basically the number one use case. no so no data, no um, x amount of steps it's just a very personal number to say hey how many you know activities i still have to do in terms of minutes to reach my healthy dose of activity so it's like a
1: notification kind of thing it's like you've got this much further to go you've got to get here you've got to get there yeah um, but it's also i guess you've got the option for the surprise and delight of like hey you're doing well today um hey, sure like hey, oh you look it looks like you've done a lot of walking hey well done
4: yeah or the other way around if you're like close to your goal the system will tell you, hey, just, you know, five minutes to go and you reach a happy day, you know. I mean, these type of things, more like positive reinforcement rather than like the stick and say, hey, you know, you haven't moved for two days. We don't have that type of things. Um, so this push notifications and so on, we are very mild on that one. We still believe that intrinsically people are motivated by the system. And uh, and I think they are. And, uh, of course, and then the, the other thing is that the system basically cr- grows with you. So once you reach a certain level of activity, of course, you can beef it up and the system calibrates according to your new fitness level.
1: So, there's an insurance angle here. Uh, tell me uh, how you actually make money. What's your business model?
4: Right. So, we go a bit back in history because we started as a fitness tracker and we had like about 300,000 people using the system. So, very good data. Um, but, you know, if, if, if you're on the fitness tracking side, you might say the pain points are not that high, you know, and plus it's pretty much marketing driven you have the under armor the Runtastic guys who basically absorb all the facebook inventory you in know to do commercials so as a small startup i don't think it's a sustainable business model so we said okay where are the pain points the biggest and where can we actually reach our mission to bring fuel to as many people as possible and then we figured out, hey insurance they have a really big pain point and they have a lot of people out there using their policies so in a way it's a good channel and a customer at the same time and um so we morphed in a way from a fitness tracker to a full-fledged, let's call it a, a, a platform, digital platform that engages customers. And thereby, of course, it creates more touch points for the insurance. Um, and of course, then we catch a lot of real-time data that can be used for more personalized services and, of course, eventually preventive care, you know, so we catch people, um, before they become chronically sick. So what's the goal
1: here? Are you going to acquire a load of customers with your own fitness trackers or, uh, sorry, your own app here? Uh, is that app going to be something that you're looking to scale? Or do you see yourself, like you say, as a platform that other people can use um, on, in different apps and can pop up inside an insurance app and, and whatever else and it becomes more ambient?
4: No, I mean, we are pure B2B player, um, even though, of course, you can download the app for testing but um, on the App Store. But we sell our platform to insurance companies life and health i should say insurance um and then basically they acquire their users i mean they the company um the customers who hold policies right um so it's more like we build a digital bridge to the end user f- the end customer of, of insurance companies and um and of course there are two angles again to it it's more like getting engagement getting touch points you know uh with the end user at the same time get dynamic data to see what's really happening in a portfolio. Because currently, think about life insurance. Uh, the typical uh, uh, purchasing pro- process is you go to a bank, typically. Uh, you buy a house or a flat. Then someone claps on your shoulder and says, hey, you want to buy a life insurance? You say, yeah, maybe. You sign that. You sign that deal and you will never hear from a life insurance again. And That's mutually dis- disappointing for either party. you know. So we want to make that more lively and move maybe life insurance or risk from pure risk cover to more like a lifestyle product and uh, i think that's our mission yeah
1: so that lifestyle product, uh, how do you help think about helping brands incorporate that into what they offer today? Because the, the services they've offered via mobile apps, I think have been somewhat um, thin, somewhat one-dimensional maybe. I, I, I don't wish to insult them, but it's been largely servicing the day-to-day, uh, hey, here you can register a product, oh, you can see your policy. The app hasn't been a very rich thing. It's just kind of flat data or maybe a bit of back and forth. How, how do you help them grow that thinking and, and what,
4: what's your approach for that? That's exactly true. It's good that you mentioned it, not me, because I'm, <laughs> I don't want to be nagging all the time. But the, um, no, of course, there are two. I mean, we sell fuel in two versions. You know, if an insurance company might have an app called My Policy, um, it's pretty, as you mentioned, pretty static. I wouldn't say dumb, but it's basically just the front end with limited interactions, just showing my, let's call it you know, personal data and my policy data. Um so what we do is we have one version where we actually have an SDK software development kit. think about it as an as a virtual implant where we have our algorithm and we actually can put that into the app of the insurance company. That basically a enriches uh, the data capture and at the same time we have our backend, our AI that can analyze that data. And so we can have two tracks that feeds it back to uh, to, to the customer. one, to the end user, we give personal coaching and tell them you know what they have to do to improve their healthy lives. And secondly, we have a stream to the insurance where we can say, hey, your portfolio behaves like this. Um, you can run some predictive analytics and make sure that you can actually hit people with the things they want. So this is like a mutual, I think. Is yeah.
1: it just a case, though, that the um, kind of insurer is benefiting from being able to get new data, or are they also having more touch points with their customer as well? Are they, is their brand in front of them more?
4: That's right. I mean, let's, put, let's say better data. Currently, they don't have any data. You know, I mean, there's no way... Uh, the typical underwriting process is you know you are getting on a health insurance a health check a health assessment say if you're 20 22 you have a bmi of 15 all all nice and shiny Um, and then you grow you know become like me a consultant you know you turn 30 35 (laughs) and then you don't have time to exercise anymore you put all your all your efforts into sort of making money and so you kind of sacrifice your health for that and, uh, and then 10 years later, you spent all the money you made to get your health back, which doesn't work, you know. Uh, so, so we basically have to transparency what actually happened in the portfolio over this course of the lifetime, which is currently not happening at all. So it's almost, you know, think about an insurance. There's a big risk portion in the portfolio that no one can quantify and foresee. And I think that's what we are trying to solve. Um, and of course, at, this, at the same time, as you mentioned, we try to make the customer experience more engaging, more lively um for instance you know you might get a a discount on your premium so it's more attractive to use that service and you get the so-called lifestyle rewards uh, let's say a gym membership organic food vouchers and so on so we're building in a way like a healthy ecosystem about your life so
1: if you're building that ecosystem of data wouldn't it make sense for you to go direct to consumers with an insurance product rather than going b2b because you'd actually be more in control of that experience like why why the b2b approach
4: well of course let's put this way Um, if we have to acquire users it's going to be very expensive you know i mean as an example the user acquisition costs on facebook has i think tripled in one and a half years so for us that would require extremely deep pockets and we kind of compete as i mentioned with other um health and fitness apps in the app store like under armor and these guys and you know they don't make money with the app or so on they make money with the clothes they promote with the app so we would have to compete on the market it's more like a marketing game in a nutshell We want to actually co-create with our, with our B2B partners because then we have a view as well, you know, uh, what's happening in the five years plus time. So we just feel more comfortable, more solid working with these people because I think it's actually a win-win. Yeah.
1: Uh, so the the Venn diagram, the crossover point between brands like Under Armour and Adidas, and then big insurance companies, your AXA, your Aviva, your uh, wh- whomever it may be, is there a is there an opportunity to do B two B to C there, uh, and actually be the sort of the middle people that are providing this new route to market for insurers via brands?
4: Well, I mean, let's say we are in terms of technology. I mean, let's say device and apps and and, and app-wise we are agnostic so we do partially as well integrate to our platform external devices and actually external applications because let's say if you're a cyclist obviously you've most likely if you're serious you have Strava so we don't want to force people use our system you know for tracking rather they keep Strava but feed actually the information to our system and still get these reward points and of course by that you know still the premiums so I think in the end of the day, you know, it's such a big market. And I think there's space uh, for a lot of us, even though I have to say Strava and Run Testing and so on, um, the audience is different. It's already like very active people, you know, guys who run, guys who cycle seriously. And we try to catch still, let's call it the big crowd, the people, you know, in the middle. Let's call it, you know, the average, the normal people. So, um, but uh, of course, you know, I think there's a chance to, I mean, in the end of the day we want to make people uh, more active and we have different interests you know i mean the insurance of course they cover take it from a risk perspective run testing want to sell more nowadays more sort of uh, adidas clothes right so it goes under armor so i'm not i don't think it's conflicting it's rather sort of it's energetic you know
1: yeah you know, it, it, it struck me as an, as an interesting avenue for somebody to be able to take a ready package proposition, but you are uh, it is also a two-sided marketplace, which is always a, a hard thing to do. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the um, insurer tech, insurance and technology market. Do you think that um, insurers are opening up to these sorts of proposition? And what are you hearing when you talk to the larger insurance groups?
4: Yeah, I think, well, let's say two years back in time, you know, People were just slamming the door in front of me. (laughs) There's, you know, there was a. It's called a certain, still a certain complacency. I think now there's a big bit of an awakening, and you can actually see it. um, You know, I've just come back from Switzerland, so there's a lot of applications already out there from insurance companies that try to engage people more than just giving policies on the app. So they are, let's say, already one step or one one foot in the market, and I think for us it makes it so much easier because the market has already opened up. You know, and it's. To whomever I speak and in an insurance, there's always something on a roadmap that's similar to our solution. Um, uh, so I think timing is, is always, it's, it's, it's an issue. But I think clearly now the market is ready for it. And as well, actually, the end users are ready for it, you know. And, do you uh, think
1: so- there's a risk of uh, what I like to call not invented here syndrome, which is where an insurer looks at that and goes, well, we have a lab, we could do this ourselves. And what would you say to them if they said that?
4: Good luck. <laughs> oh, it's uh, a, uh,
1: <laughs> no, you know, I've been... As somebody who worked in a large bank for many years who used to say that quite a lot, I can tell you that that's probably a good response.
4: But- <laughs> yeah, it's always make or buy. But to be honest, I mean, we shouldn't forget we are, we've been in this... I mean, we're coming from the fitness side of things, from the end user. So I think there's a certain learning involved. We've tuned the system. The retention is so high. Our users move five times more than average. Let's say there's a certain secret sauce that we have figured and you can only get it By trial and error, you know it's not that you have a big organization and just put something out, and all of a sudden you have you have that solution in your hands. It's just it's it's a path you go, you know, and you learn and iterate. Um, And second to that, I guess mm, I haven't mentioned what's the really the real core of fuel. But you know, as opposed to these ten thousand steps, we have actually an algorithm that can measure real activity and uh, data and rich data that actually can be used for more, let's say, uh, simulation. Purposes. Let's say we, we, for instance, we measure a unit called MET, metabolic equivalent of task, which is typically what you should do if you, if you follow health and, and, and life science journals, you know, and, and sports science. Plus, we measure, you know, if we have the heart rate data, we measure VO2 max, which is in a nutshell the capacity of your heart uh, to consume oxygen. All that stuff is pretty scientific and pretty complicated. It doesn't show on the app, and that's the purpose, you know, we don't throw it to our end users. But in the end of the day, there's so many parameters that we've over the years tuned and fixed to get to this point. So um, uh, I, I'm pretty confident that uh, uh, it's not too easy to replicate. You know.
1: So, so there's a couple of things there that, that that come out as key, which is you've come from the fitness industry and sports science, so you specialize the data around sports science itself and and there's a richness of that data quality both for the user themselves and for the insurer and secondly from coming from that you're designing around somebody's fitness needs not necessarily just their insurance needs so you then let the insurer insure but you're providing the data they need with something that somebody who cares about their fitness may also want to see and and is is a bit more cutting edge
4: that's right that's right And, um, and the third component is you know it comes back to your previous question. I think the market is now ready. It's a bit of a domino effect, you know, big guys coming out. So uh, I would say in the next one, two years, there will be a lot of uh, applications and solutions from insurance uh, in in the market. And then this make or buy, it's always, it it has always a time to market component. You know, I mean, I mean, if there's a ready-made solution like ours, where we wouldn't require any, any integration to legacy systems and so on, you can technically, you can be up and running in a week. So I think then the question is, Do you want to explore that in-house two years and three years or you want to take it and do it and try it in the market, you know, because I think in the end of the day, every, every month you wait is every month you don't get data. That you can't basically mirror your assumptions you might have in your in your biometric data. I so think it's I think an interesting question.
1: Our, yeah, is is why wouldn't you trial this with a thousand customers and see if it uh, made them more profitable, more active customers, or you had some other kind of business case benefits for it? What's the what's the risk of trialing this for three months with a thousand people, and what's the cost of it versus spending two years trying to build it and spending X million? I think it's there's an interesting question to think about. But you're based in Finland. Are you
4: available worldwide? Uh, yeah, the app is available worldwide and, and, uh, you know on the Play Store, Google, and then iOS on, on the App Store. Um, we have two versions. We have the basic version, um, which is the casual track, and then we have the premium version where you need external hardware like the Apple Watch. It's more like a, a fitness coach. Um, so that's available, um, but it's basically then just the, the app itself. It's not loaded with the rewards and the, the premium discounts and so on from the insurance. So, but it's just like... Uh, you know, we keep it still alive and and see how you, I mean, that's again, you know, we want to learn from the market and from our users and, uh, yeah, it's, and now of course we are going to Switzerland, open an office there. So a bit closer to mainland, you know, (laughs) as well. But let's say a company
1: in the UK or the Netherlands or somewhere across Europe or even, uh, Asia Pacific wanted to talk to you guys. They, how would they reach out to you?
4: Well, I mean, uh, obviously they would get in touch with me. I'm doing the most of the BD work. Um, and, then of course we'll discuss, you know, what they have in mind. Um, technically, maybe we have to walk through how it works. You know, it's you don't. I mean, virtually can be we can actually enable the system, so we don't have to physically be where the insurance is. You know, so we the only thing you have to do as an insurance, you have to promote your service. Let's call it Smart Life or Smart Health Insurance, um, and then we enable everything else. You know, so technically how it works is you as an end user, end customer of an insurance. You would get an SMS or an email saying, you know, this is a new offering. You press that link. You will be directed to the App Store. You download Fuel. And then immediately the Fuel applications turn into the insurance application. And it starts tracking and it uploads all the rewards and the campaigns and so on. So that's it, you know. I mean, then you're up, up and running. So it's, it's, very, it's a SaaS model, software as a service model. So that's actually, you know, how we can actually do it virtually as well.
1: Sasha, thank you. Before I let you go, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions we ask everybody um, because there's uh, obviously a lot of people that are looking from the insurance market to figure out how they can use technology and and how they can uh, kind of get into that side of the insurance market a little bit more. Uh, So tell me a little bit about what's the best career advice you've ever received and uh, what's your number one productivity tip?
4: Um, Yeah, career advice. A lot of people have given me the wrong advice, which means, you know, they said, hey, if you want to be A startup entrepreneur, you have to basically do it full throttle. You have to leave your job, do it, you know, tomorrow, Monday morning, and then give it all your heart and and so on. It's a nice theory, but quite frankly, it's a bit risky, you know. So uh, my advice would be as well that – and I think that's what one guy actually encouraged me to do was to say, hey, why not if you have a certain idea, you know – why would you leave your job if you can actually check that hypothesis at the same time while working you know you can talk to people you might even launch a bit of a prototype that you work on on a weekend on and then you can at least have a certain confidence once you jump you see there's a demand for it you know i mean that would be a good advice i think so um and in terms of productivity um i mean you mean on a daily basis i mean productivity for myself or for a company
1: Uh, for yourself really
4: well, of course, you know, I'm into sports. I have to be, you know, <laughs> you have to, you have to live, you know, you know, by the fuel rules. So there's always, of course, you know, how I go about my days. Um, well, let's say typically they say people, you know, if you get up, you know, you have before you go breakfast, you have a run or whatever sports an hour, and then you boost your day. I think science tells you differently. <laughs> so my productivity advice would be before you do that, um, you know, you just do your work two, three days, have a good breakfast. And when you feel your energy is dropping, then you go for a run or for a good walk. I think you reverse. I think what I've learned that's boosts productivity much more. You know, uh, that's interesting. Little... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a believer
1: <laughs> in the same thing. Get get some yeah. fuel in.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you shouldn't have 10x, of course, before you go running, but
1: maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Sasha, thank you so much for your time today. Um, where can people reach out to you on LinkedIn, Twitter? What's your website?
4: Yeah, website is uh, fuel.com. Um, and linkedin of course i'm on linkedin and sasha at fuel.com s-a-s-c-h-a uh, fuel.com you can reach me as and well
1: fuel i guess is the interesting spelling it's f-j-u-u-l um in case it confuses yeah, anybody <laughs> sasha that's been really fun thank you for joining us on InsureTech insider
2: So that wraps up another Intro Tech Insider. Thanks to all of our guests, James, Sasha, and as always, Sarah, thanks for coming along. Anytime. Uh, Sorry that Nigel couldn't make it, but Nigel will be back with us next week, I'm sure. As always, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe. If you have any suggestions for feedback, please reach out to us on Twitter or on podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks for
4: listening.